0: a scripture reading, you can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, As you're turning, as I mentioned, we have the opportunity to have uh, Ben and Amy Straub and their four children with us. They serve at Central Africa Baptist University in Zambia, where he is the Dean of Bible. He's also a deacon at his local church, uh, where Amy serves in women's ministry. And you'll hear more about... Uh, them as he will introduce himself and their ministry a little bit prior to preaching god's word later this morning There's also a table in the back. So as you get to know them I hope you'll grab a prayer card and write down their information maybe sign up on the iPad there to receive his email updates this morning Well, good morning It's a wonderful privilege to be back with you this morning. I shared in Sunday school It's not often I get to be back at a church less than a year After I was with you the last time, last year, April, I came by myself. And finally, I managed to bring my whole family with me. So make sure you take time to greet my wife. Amy was here with me in 2020, so this is not her first time here, but our four kiddos have not come with us until this time, so I'll introduce them quickly. I think the two little ones just left. Simon, Isaac, those are the two big ones back there, and Casper and Ada are our younger ones. We're glad to be with you. I shared in Sunday school, An overview of our ministry and if you have any specific questions wonder what it's all about we'll be back at the table afterwards afterwards but just in brief um, we serve at central africa baptist university which exists to train the next generation of servant leaders in africa for great commission living we see ourselves as partners with local churches in zambia and across africa We're driven by the question of what it means for the Western Church to partner effectively with the global church to raise up its own leaders so that they can obey the Great Commission. And so we 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 serve in that role. My role is Dean of the School of Bible, and I oversee our Bible programs. As Pastor Ross mentioned, I do have business cards and a few of my prayer card magnets and uh, a uh iPad will be back at the back to sign up if you're interested in email updates. But we're very grateful for the relationship we've been able to develop with you over the last few years, and we're grateful for the opportunity to be with you here again to present our ministry. Um, We'll be looking this morning at a parable that's very familiar to us. And so if you would turn with me to Luke 15 as we examine what is often called the parable of the prodigal son. Even though the parable is familiar to us, I suspect that the emotion that the parable is meant to deal with is less familiar. At least open, honest conversations about that emotion. And the emotion that I'm talking about is shame. Uh, We read... Two passages of scripture already, and even the song that we just sang, are driven by thinking about a concept that exists all around us, but seldom we take time to talk about, and that's the concept of shame. And so I want us to take a few minutes and look at the parable in Luke 15 that Jesus tells of the father and his two sons, And spend some time thinking about an uncomfortable concept, an uncomfortable feeling, an uncomfortable emotion that we call shame. Shame is considered by many to be what's called a primary emotion. It underlies many of the other emotions that we give names to, like anger and sadness. If you think of primary colors, you know, yellow, blue, and red, they make up all the other colors. Shame operates like that in our emotional lives. lives. It underlies and fuels many of the other emotional responses that we have. There's different ways of considering this feeling that we call shame. We can look at it from a public perspective when someone has brought shame upon themselves through some action that they've done, a shameful thing. But the much more powerful and much less dealt with is the internal reality of shame, the shame that we feel when we fail to measure up. And even though none of us may have ever had our names in the headlines in a publicly shameful way, All of us daily encounter the reality of shame. It exerts great communal power in our lives. Those headlines that we mentioned a moment ago where some big, ridiculous, horrible thing has been made public. That dynamic of shame working at the communal level often is used to enforce conformity. And in our modern day and age where moral convictions have become less, uh, have become more varied, let me say it that way, there aren't fewer of them, there are more of them, shame is often a powerful motivator to try to force conformity at the societal level. But it also works at our individual community levels. Shame is what happens in our families and in our communities when somebody doesn't just fit in. Shame is the emotional response that is used to pressure people in our communities into conformity. And it operates in our hearts by creating fears of exposure, of judgment, of failure, or of exclusion. If you have felt a fear of one of those things, you have experienced shame. Our personal shame is really built upon our history with it. All of us are shaped by community and family dynamics that have a complex relationship with the power of shame. And all of us in our hearts have learned responses to minimize the shame that we feel to get out of the discomfort, of the disgrace, of shame. In the, at the end of the day, however, shame cannot be reduced to an, Im, uh, an impassive list of facts or dismissed as a biochemical sickness. It is contained in the stories that we are unable or unwilling to tell to others. And we all have them. We all have the story that we don't tell to anyone. And perhaps there are many of those stories that we keep hidden in our hearts for fear of exposure. There's a theory that the field of psychology has suggested an explanation for shame called self-discrepancy theory. Self-discrepancy theory suggests that shame enters into a vacuum that is created by the discrepancy between our expectations of who we think people think we're supposed to be and who we think we actually are. So the concepts are Perception of the self in community and perception of the self within myself. There's a, there's a gap between those, between who I should be and who I am. And shame is the emotion that fills the gap between who I should be and who I am. But it's not a public display. It's a private matter of our hearts that often spills over into public reactions, and public relationships. But it lives deep within our hearts. Ultimately, shame is driven by the following questions. Am I enough? What am I worth? Will I be accepted? And I hope and pray this morning we can pause long enough To feel one of those questions deep within our hearts. Because Jesus, in this parable that we're going to consider together, invites us to reflect on shame. But he does it in some surprising and unexpected ways. Before we get to the parable, as we turn our eyes to the passage of Scripture, If I were to ask you where you would go to look at shame in Scripture, I suspect many of us would go to the book of Genesis. A natural, normal place to start because that's where shame began. In the Garden of Eden, our first parents were the first to experience shame. In fact, we're told prior to the fall they were naked and unashamed. The writer of Genesis helps us remember that there was no shame prior to the fall. And, of course, we know the story of their shame after the fall. But one commentator suggests that shame is not just a consequence of something our first parents did in the Garden of Eden. It is the emotional weapon that evil uses to, one, corrupt our relationships with God and each other, and two, to disintegrate any and all gifts of vocational vision and creativity. And those gifts which shame robs us of enable us to flourish as the light-bearing community of Jesus followers who work to create space for others who wish to join us. Shame is a weapon of the devil to prevent us from connection with God and connection with each other. And shame operates so powerfully in our cultures today that it goes unchecked and unchallenged. In fact, many of us live in cultures that have taught us to believe that shame is a valuable tool in our tool belt to create action in other people. The seed that the devil himself planted in humanity's hearts in the fall has become something that we use in our relationships with each other. And shame is a complicated idea. My own history, my own journey to understand shame starts as I entered the mission field. I was not raised in a context that caused me much, to, gave me much time to reflect on the role of shame. But it was still there, it's still present. But as I moved overseas and I began to study worldview, I learned about a concept called honor-shame cultures and guilt-innocence cultures. I'm not going to spend this message talking about those dynamics because that's an academic worldview understanding of shame. And even though I've spent years studying from that perspective, I had never taken the time to look for shame in my own heart, in my own relationships, in my own parenting, I'd never taken the time to do that. And so I want us to be aware of those dynamics, but I want us to also recognize that even though Western culture may not be labeled as an honor-shame culture, shame runs rampant in our societies in the 21st century. And we must pause long enough to look at it. So I I want to invite you... To turn towards the scriptures and to turn inward to reflect on your own heart. I have two invitations for us to consider. To invite us to consider our own hidden shame. To see Jesus' beautiful response to shame. To uncover cultural blinders that prevent us from offering grace to each other's shame we will spend some time looking at the story of what I will call the prodigal sons, the prodigal sons. And we'll look at both of them together. But here are my two invitations for you to reflect on this morning. Invitation number one is an invitation to cultural openness and biblical exploration. And this is the question I just want us to consider from from, uh, Luke 15. Have the individualism and guilt-centered focus of our society prevented us from experiencing this story the way Jesus intended us to experience it? It's an invitation to cultural openness and biblical exploration. And number two, I want to invite us to spiritual openness and personal exploration. It's driven by this question. Have I faced my own shame and accepted Christ's grace? to fill up my shame? Am I vulnerable and open with my community or do I continue to hide parts of myself? And do I offer grace and welcome to others in my community in order to create a community where grace has overcome shame? So I invite us to cultural openness and biblical exploration and to spiritual openness and personal exploration as we look at the story That has often been called the prodigal son. It's a longer text, and so I'm not going to read the whole parable up front. But I will be walking us through the parable, trying to give us a sense of what Jesus was intending to convey in his cultural context of his day. This parable is soaked with shame. It's soaked with it. And if we don't read this parable and hear the absolute disgrace that is dripping from the words of this story, we fail to connect with the idea that Jesus is trying to get us to understand. So we'll begin as the story begins with the younger brother, picking it up in, in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. There's very few emotion words, very few feeling words in that in the words themselves. But if we pause long enough to put ourselves into the first century context and hear... The relational dynamics that are unfolding in this story, there's great shame. And so we'll start by beginning with the shame of the younger brother. Some of these things you know, but I'll remind you that this is a young man who is treating his father as if he were already dead. In the first century world, the inheritance was not something you got from a living father. But this young man goes to a living father and says, Dad, I know you're still here, but I want money now. And as we, as we launch into this, I want us to, to, to step back and ask ourselves how we've heard the story told. So I want to give us just a quick, quick flyover of something that I suspect we've probably heard the story of the Prodigal Son as we've come to know it. And this is just the highlights. Probably you would connect with this version of the story. There's a foolish young man who wants independence, money, and pleasure. He leaves behind his good family and lives a wasteful and immoral life. He runs out of money and is forced to feed pigs. Although few of us would connect with the concept of feeding pigs, but some of us might. He comes to his senses and decides to go home and repent. The dad accepts his repentance and welcomes him back. But sadly, the older brother is jealous and wants a party for himself since he was obedient and faithful. And many, many children's books tell the story in that way. And I wonder when the story is told that way, I wonder how we feel about the characters of the story. Who do we identify with? Who are we meant to be like? And in that telling of the story, probably most of us would connect with one of the two sons. Probably. In fact, many of us would see our own salvation in the story of the younger son. Some of us might hear some identification with the older son. Or perhaps, if we've had what our culture has come to call a prodigal son of our own, we may perhaps identify with the father. But as we step back to hear the story as Jesus' listeners would have heard it, as we listen to the story afresh, as we talk about the shame borne by each of these three men, I want us to listen to our own hearts and hear how we are feeling about each of these three men. Because Jesus tells this parable in order to prompt a heart response in his listeners. And because we're so much further from the cultural context, we don't have those immediate heart responses. I'm sorry to say this, but I'm going to try to create them in us this morning as best as I can. Jesus could tell the story and generate them. I'm going to try to get to the cultural context to help us have a sense of that shame. And so returning to the younger brother's shame, as I already mentioned, he begins by treating a living father as dead. A very shameful thing to do in a context in which the, the whole community was built on the family structure. By treating his father this way, he's turning his back on his community and he goes a step further because inheritance in the first century world would have been given in the form of property. And he says that. And he turns around and sells off family property and by doing so, makes his family and his community poorer. I mean, the property were their means of income. It was their fields and flocks. It was the thing that kept the family secure. But because of his selfishness, he takes what is not yet his right and sells it to others, bringing immense shame on the family and on himself. And he turns his back on it and walks away. We know very little about his life while he was away from his family, except that it was expensive or without restraint. The accusation that we hear later about an immoral lifestyle is actually only on the lips of the older brother. The older brother accuses him of an immoral lifestyle. And of course, that may or may not be true. But the fact that it's the brother's accusation tells us more about the brother, the younger brother's shame than it tells us about his lifestyle. Because the community basically, he abandoned them. He left them to a far country, a Gentile country, as we'll come to see in a moment. The rumor of immorality is the natural rumor that grows up. And we can see the shame, the, 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 the older brother using this weapon of shame against his younger brother when he returns. Furthermore, what we do know about his life in the far country is that he worked for foreigners. Many of us miss the famine. But if the famine hadn't happened, his unrestrained living likely would have continued. But, of course, God, in his sovereignty, allows the famine to happen. He has to get a job. He goes and gets the only job he's able to get in a time of famine, and that's feeding pigs. Keepers of pigs in the first century world had a right to eat the pig's entrails, you know, the part that you don't sell when you're harvesting pigs. He had a right to that food, but he's a Jew. And he doesn't have the He's not allowed to eat the entrails of the pig. And so even though he is shamed and gone from his family, he still feels the burden of obedience to the Old Testament law. And he desires to eat pig food. I mean, that is the depths of shame. But even in the depths of his shame, he still feels this burden not to eat the pig Entrails, but only to eat what is basically unedible to humans. This is the depths of his shame. And so finally he, he realizes what am I doing? My father's servants are well fed, and I'm trying to eat pig food. Do you hear his grief in that moment? But there's a problem. The problem is the shame that he bears. Because when he worked for a foreigner, he triggered an ancient Jewish rabbinic law that allowed Jewish communities to renounce or disown young Jewish men for two reasons. If they married a non-Jew or if they worked for a non-Jew, they could be disowned by their communities. So he has, He has nowhere else to go. Home is the last place he wants to go. But because of the famine and because of his starvation, he has nothing else. And so he concocts this plan. He decides he wants his father, his own father, to hire him and pay him enough so that he could live. This would have been a visible sign to his community of his shame. To work as a hired laborer on his own family farm. But it also would have put him in a position to earn his keep and repay some of the debt that he owed to his community. So he goes back and in the depths of his shame, he goes to his father... He could not dare ask for forgiveness, but only for his life to be spared for a chance to earn back some minimal status in the community. And for hundreds of years, Western culture and the church and art have focused on this moment of reunion between the prodigal and the father. And it is a powerful moment. It's a powerful moment. But I'm going to suggest to us it's not the point of the parable. It's not the climax of the parable. Because I want to ask us the question, did the younger son in fact repent? Reading in verse um, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. So I ask us this question, do we believe that the younger son repented? I'm not going to come to a definite answer on that. But I'm going to suggest to us that I'm not sure that Jesus is telling us this story to hear repentance from the younger son. And I want to just give you a couple of clues to that from the context. First of all, when it says that he came to himself, some people say that's his moment of repentance. However, that phrase only happens one other time in scripture, and it's in Peter in Acts, when he's rescued from the prison. and the angel comes and leads him out, and he's in a trance coming out of prison, and all of a sudden he he thinks it's a dream, and all of a sudden he wakes up from the dream. He comes to himself. It's the same idea. It's not really the idea of repentance. It's the idea of coming out of a trance, coming out of a haze. And so, I don't think that's repentance. Secondly, remember he was motivated by an empty stomach. Thirdly, he planned to go back to the community to earn his way back into their good graces. To be hired and paid so that he could repay some of the massive financial losses that he caused to them. Fourthly, this phrase that the Son uses, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Remember, in the context, Jesus is speaking this parable to Pharisees. And Pharisees would have said, Jesus, we've heard that phrase before. That phrase, sinned against heaven and before you, the other time that occurs in scripture is on the lips of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. At the ninth plague, when Pharaoh finally relents and lets the Egyptian, the, 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 the people of Israel leave Egypt, this is the substance of Pharaoh's repentance. And the ne- very next word after that is, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we know Pharaoh's repentance was far from genuine. The Pharisees would have considered Pharaoh's repentance to be deceitful manipulation. And it's possible Jesus puts this phrase on the lips of the young man because he is also motivated by deceitful manipulation. And finally, the last clue. Did you notice the difference between what he planned to say and what he actually said? He leaves off a phrase. He plans in verse um, 18, he plans this speech. But when he actually goes, he doesn't get to the part about asking to be hired. He says I'm no longer worthy, and it appears that he breaks down under the weight of his shame and is no longer even able to ask that he be hired. This is the crushing weight of shame that the young man feels as he enters into the Father's presence. He is broken, and the phrase, I am no longer worthy, says nothing about guilt. And everything about shame. It is the emotional and relational burden that he's bearing. And how did the father respond? Our approach tends to focus on the father's love and forgiveness. But I'm going to suggest to us that's probably not what Jesus was intending the Pharisees to hear. But before we get to the father, we will, I promise, we'll come to the father. I want to spend a few minutes with the older son. Just just briefly look at the shame of the older son and see if we can experience his shame. So I'm going to skip ahead about the father's response to verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, And we don't need to dwell long on the shame of the elder brother. But just as the younger brother is broken by his shame, the older brother's response to his father uses the shame, as I mentioned before, as a crowbar to try to separate the relationship that has just been rebirthed between the father and the younger son. He tries to use, to heap shame upon his brother. He brings further shame to his family by refusing to enter into the party that the father has called. This is public family embarrassment. That the the older brother is willing to risk bringing further shame to the father by causing a family grievance right out here in the open in the party. And he does this because of the shame that he feels. And many of us read his response and read it in terms of fairness. It's not fair. But in the first century cultural world, it's not fairness that is motivating him. It's worth. He's asking the father, am I not enough? Look at all I've done. Is it not enough Am I not enough to deserve this? Do you feel his shame? And counselors today tell us, shamed people shame people. And we see that exact event happening with the older brother. Because this shame that he bears with never knowing if he's enough for his father, enough for his community, good enough, profitable enough. Because of that shame that he feels, he uses shame to separate, to attempt to separate the father and the brother. And this brings us, as we wrap up, back to the father. Because as we said, the, 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 old, the younger brother is broken by shame And the older brother is attempting to use shame as a weapon in their family. But the father enters willingly into shame. And it's interesting to think of the shame that the father himself bears. And it starts when he runs out to his younger son. You know, it's a a concept we're familiar with, that he's looking for him and longing for him and he runs out. But if we pause and hear this as a first century Pharisee would, we would recognize that's a very unfatherly thing to do. Dads don't run out of their house when children show up. Moms do. And we laugh because that's kind of true in our cultural world, but that was Really true in their cultural world. It was a shameful thing for an elderly father to run out and find his son. But the dad bears the shame in search of the son. Secondly, he had a right to expect those two men to come to him. But did you notice the elder brother even stays out? He stays out of the party. And what does the father do? The father goes out of the party to invite him in. Again, once once again, a very non-cultural thing for a first century father to do. To gather a family gathering. Somebody refuses to come. He had every right to be like, no problem. He's not coming to any of the rest of the family gatherings either. He had every right in the first century cultural world, but he doesn't. He goes out and bears that shame to invite the older brother back into community. Jesus goes further to say that he comforted the older brother. He comforted him. It's one of the few emotion words in the context but he comforts the older brother. It's in our, it might be translated entreated in your version. He entreated him. That's the idea of comforting and inviting and pursuing, even though he had every right to rebuke him. And lastly, the last time the, the, the father bears societal shame is this phrase that occurs twice in the passage. He was dead but he is alive. He was lost, but he is found. And we have to come back to that right that a Jewish community had for how they could treat somebody who had strayed and brought this level of shame on their community. There was a ceremony that the rabbis gave to communities to officially declare a young person as dead if they dared to show their face in the community again, the community had a ceremony prescribed by the rabbis where they declared them dead in their presence. And even though the father has this culturally appropriate means of casting out shame, he doesn't do it. My son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he is found. And this brings us to the point of the passage. That the the grace of the Father fills the gap between what these young men should have been and who they actually were. Instead of shame filling that gap between expectation and reality, the Father pours His grace into that gap by entering into their shame, by going out to them, by pursuing them where they are. The Father invites invites both sons back into community. The parable makes very little sense at the end if we can only read it through the lens of guilt. From that perspective, the older brother is correct because he really isn't guilty. He really did stay around and stay faithful. But when we see through the lens of shame, we discover that there's two kinds of shame operating in our communities. There's two common responses Either we experience shame and seek to cover it by working to be worthy of the communities that we have failed. That's what the younger brother does, right? Maybe I can work my way back into their graces. Or we work hard to remain acceptable, always right, always fitting in, always connecting, always like everyone else but secretly doubt if we really have ever done enough. That's the younger brother and older brother. And when I was writing this message, I I actually initially was going to say, just as I'm revealing to you my cultural blinders here, I was going to talk about the the grace that the father has for the lawbreaker and the lawkeeper. But then it dawned on me, that's guilt language. And this is not driven by guilt. This is the grace that the father has for the community breaker and the community striver. The one who has cast aside and brought shame to his community. Jesus says the father goes out and brings him back. The one who has remained in his community but always doubts if he has ever done enough and hides and covers. The father goes out and brings him back. Jesus seeks and finds us both. He goes out to search to the far place and invites us in. But he also seeks for the lost and shamed within the home and rejoices and invites them into full fellowship. And as I said, the, 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 I don't believe the point of this parable is that moment of reunion between the father and the younger son. I believe the point of the parable is the party. The point of the parable is the party. And we know this because in verse 24, when the reconciliation happens, the very next thing is they began to celebrate. The fellowship breaker has already been brought back into the community. But there's one other thing we often miss about this parable. Do you notice we don't know how the older brother responds? The story ends with the invitation hanging. The father goes out to the older brother, who's questioning and feels unworthy and fathered, have I not done enough for you And he exposes his shame to his father. And the father simply says, come in and celebrate. And the story ends before we know whether he ever responds. Now, lastly, I want to zoom out to the cultural, the the, the scriptural context to remind us the reason Jesus does this is because he's actually speaking to the Pharisees here who accused him of eating with sinners the, The Pharisees themselves attempted to use shame against Jesus. That's that guy who eats with sinners. Why are you following him? Do you hear the shame? And Jesus proceeds to answer them by telling them a story that invites even the Pharisees back into community. Even the Pharisees receive the invitation. You who have strived and never felt like you were ever enough. You crossed every T and dotted every I and tithed and gave and came and lived and never know if it's enough. Come in. Come in. And Christ's grace fills up the shame. And as we reflect on what we're supposed to do with this, what do we do with a story like this? I want to remind us that there are actually three men in the parable, not two. Oftentimes we'll pick one of the brothers to identify with because the church for years has told us that the father represents God. And there's a, there's a, a level of the story in which that's true. It is true that the father is a picture of God. But Jesus is telling this story about himself. So in the immediate context, the father is actually a picture of Jesus, because this is Jesus's response to why he eats with sinners. The father is a picture of Jesus, and there's so much hope in that, because if we call ourselves followers of Christ, then we have this beautiful picture of bearing others' shame in order to fill up their disgrace With grace. Of entering into the disgrace of others. And meeting them in their disgrace. And filling it up with grace. And so I I started with an invitation. An invitation to cultural openness and biblical exploration. And an invitation to spiritual openness and personal exploration. So I just want to just read some questions in application. I don't know your relationships. I don't know what life is like in this church community. I don't know what life is like in your family. I don't know what your relationship with your parents are, your kids are. I don't know. But I just want to ask some questions to help us reflect on Christ's grace filling up our shame, and then we'll be done. Question one, how has shame found its way into your own relationships? What do you feel you must hide from others in order to remain acceptable? Is your own shame primarily fueled by community breaking or community striving? Question number two Do you subtly believe that Christ has resolved your guilt but not your shame? Do you think you can give your sin to Christ but not? the shame in your heart? Do you think you can trust him to forgive you but not to welcome you? What in our subcultures and communities prevents us from dealing with our shame through vulnerability with others? And lastly, how have you seen Christ meet you in your own shame and fill up your lack with his grace? What specific ways, and I think we should all maybe write down right now in your bulletin, one way that you can find someone in their shame this week and enter into it with grace. That's my invitation to us. Our God and Father, we praise you for your grace that is made known to us through Jesus Christ. We praise you for the invitation of the prodigal sons. And you, Jesus, who runs to them and invites them in and covers their disgrace with your grace. God, we seek to be open before you today. There is shame in each of our hearts that we have not dealt with. There's shame in our families, in our relationships that we have not dealt with. May we give that to you. May we open our hearts to you and to each other. And may we fill up the lack of grace, that great disgrace, with the grace of Christ poured into our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.